It's my privilege this morning to introduce to you Michael Suderman. He's our speaker of the morning. Um, to some of you, Michael is a new face, but to many of us who've been involved in the GP men's ministries over the past year, Michael is an old friend. He's a speaker and advisor in Washington, D.C., graduated from Tabor uh, College in Kansas. He also completed his Master of Theology at the University of Oxford and spent two years of study also with the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And so prior to his coming to Oxford, Michael was involved in youth ministries and participated in university ministries as well, uh, in the educational aspect, volunteerism, and, and also in the missions. Uh, he, he did missions work throughout India. So during the past six years, recently, Mike has spoken to audiences all over the world about the big questions of life, um, its meaning, its purpose, all through the lens of the Christian faith. And as an advisor today, he works closely with elected officials and senior government leaders in Washington to strategically help them engage in some of the most challenging social and political issues of our time. So in our series of Building Bridges for, for Life Changed Through Christ, Michael's going to shed light this morning for us today on the truth of how to share the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to a post-truth culture that we live in today. Michael Suderman. Mike, come on up. Thanks, Jay. Well, good morning, everybody. All right. Good to be out of the city for a little bit. I see some green grass. Uh, don't always get that opportunity. Um, nice to see your lovely faces, and I do see a few familiar faces in the audience. Uh, to those of you who haven't met me, um, I'll be really brief because I know we're a little short on time. Um, live in Washington D.C., and as as Jay so kindly mentioned, I've had a tremendous opportunity just to travel extensively over the last seven to ten years, and just engage in conversations with people, and really. Um, committed to become a student of culture and to understand what's going on with um, the big ideas, uh, not just in the United States, but globally. And I think as time goes by, those questions become more and more similar, not just here, but other parts of the world. If if any of you are here from another nation, I'm sure you've seen some of that as well. Um, And so I want to delve into this question about the role of truth and the place of truth. Um, Our roadmap uh, really for this morning is to look at how truth Freedom and purpose are related. That's kind of the heart of this, um, this idea that I want to present. Uh, but before we get started, would you just pray with me? Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to meet together, um, despite being in totally uncertain times and um, not being able to see each other normally. We just, I'm just so grateful for this and uh, for this church family. And Lord, I just ask that you would speak this morning through me. And, um, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. So as, as I have had the opportunity to travel and speak and have conversations with people, um, there are a whole myriad of conversations that stand out to me. But there's one in particular, um, and I've shared with this, this with the guys, so if this is the second time you're hearing that, please forgive me. Um, But there's one conversation in particular that really stands out to me because there's so many things about it that I just have reflected on over the years. And um, I live in Washington, D.C. New York City is about five hours away by bus, and uh, that's usually the option I take to get there. And when I get on the bus, usually 
for whatever reason, I'm one of the last people that people that others will sit by. I don't know if you're that guy or that woman, but that seat will be empty beside me for a long time. And it just happens. I don't know. The, the bus seats are narrow. I mean, I'm not enormous, but my shoulders are a little broad. I don't know if that's what it is or if I look mean. I don't know. But um, when people get on the bus, they look for a seat. And there was one particular day where the bus had filled up and the seat was, beside me was open. And this young woman comes on the bus and she starts looking around for a seat. And she sees that the seat beside me is open. And then she continues to look for a seat, only to find that there were no other seats available. So she walked down the aisle and sat down beside me. And I said, hi, how you doing? She said, hi, how are you? And we just exchanged pleasantries. And um, I started a conversation. I said, um, so are you, are you from D.C.? Are you going home? Are you, are you um, leaving home? And she said, uh, no, I live here in D.C., but she wasn't from there originally. And I said, oh, so interesting. What do you do? And which is not a question that I typically ask. Usually in D.C., the order of questions you're asked when you're introduced to someone is, uh, what do you do? Where did you go to school? And how can I use you? Usually in, those, in that order is how that plays out. So I try not to ask that what do you do question just because of how run-of-the-mill it is. Usually there's more to people besides what they do. But in Washington, D.C., that's pretty much the focus. But on this case, I don't know why I made an exception. And she said, I work with um, disadvantaged students in the city. And I said, wow. Because that's really rare in Washington. If you know anything about Washington, D.C., it's, it's not just one city. D.C. Is a, is a tale of two cities. There's the federal city, which you're all familiar with. And there's the district, which is actually the city itself, the people who live there and have lived there for, for many decades. And the federal city has all of the resources and the money and the power and not much need in the same way the district does. And the district has all the need, but none of the resources and money and power. And people come to Washington, D.C. from all over the world to invest in the federal city. But it's very, very rare. In fact, she is the only person in seven years of living in D.C. that I have met who came to D.C. to invest in the district. So it was exceptional. And it, it struck me. I thought, that's really amazing. I mean, good for you. Good for you. And, and she said, well, what do you do? Which was always an interesting question because for that period of time, I was traveling around and speaking to people about the big questions of life and meaning and purpose and these types of things. So that's what I said. And she said, so are you an evangelical? And I said, I don't really know what you mean by that, but if you're asking me if I'm a Christian, then yes. And she said, this is going to be a long bus ride. And I was like, all right, wow, here we go. All right, New York, here, here we go. And um, we started, I, well, we actually sat in silence for what felt like an eternity. And she finally just sat there and she said, well, are you going to ask me or what? And I said, ask you what? And she said, are you going to ask me what I believe? And I said, okay, what do you believe? And she said, I'm so glad you asked. I was like, okay. And she said, I'm an atheistic Buddhist. And I thought, okay, interesting. And, and I'm processing this kind of quickly in my, in my head and thinking, okay, maybe spiritual but not religious type of a thing, but she's a little bit more specific. Okay, that's, that's unique. And I said, tell me a little bit more about that. And we chatted briefly. And after she had talked for a little bit, I asked her a question. I said, can I, or I asked her, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. And I said, so you're an atheistic Buddhist. I know that karma is a central principle in Buddhism. Do you believe in karma? And she said, absolutely. Undeniable. She said, if there's anything that I believe in, it's karma. And I said, you've observed this. And I was like, just to, to clarify, 
karma is if you give good, you get good. And if you give bad, you get bad, right? And she said, yeah, simple enough. And, and you believe in this? And she said, yes, absolutely. And you've seen this? Yes. I was like, that's so interesting. And I asked her, I said, so in the case of the students that you work with, are they in their disadvantaged position because of something, because of bad karma in this life, something they did in this life, or in a previous life? And she got very quiet. And she said, I see your point. Maybe I'm not a Buddhist. And I was like, wow, that was quick, really quick. But the reason that didn't settle with her well is because the implication of what she believed to be true is that the plight of the students that she was working with in Washington, D.C. was justified by the bad karma that they had either in this life or a former life. And she didn't like that tension. It didn't sit well with her. And it took about 30 seconds for her to abandon one of the central things that she so passionately you know, was committed to in that moment. And I'm not out there trying to just deconstruct people like that. I mean, that's kind of unique that that happened. And we chatted for a bit longer, and I said, can I ask you just a really blunt question? And she said, sure. And I said, what is your biggest objection to the Christian faith? If you're totally honest, you know, I'm not going to judge your response. I'm genuinely curious. What is your biggest objection? And she sat for a moment, and really honestly, she said, you know, it's sexual ethics. I thought, whoa. I mean, what, a, what an honest response. You know, you don't get that kind of honesty out of a stranger very often, but she went straight to it. And she said, it's, it's the moral demands of the Christian faith. I think they're restrictive. I think they're limiting. And I think they're oppressive. I thought, wow. And I told her, I was like, thanks for being honest. That's, that's very direct. And we, I, w- I want to come back to this conversation. But that point uh, I'll come back to that later. That point about the Christian faith in particular and the, and the moral laws and the truth claims that are made being something that's restrictive, limiting, something that would steal our freedom is an idea that I have encountered more and more and more over the last years. That there's something about the Christian faith, there's something about the truth claims of the Christian faith that just are oppressive. And there's this need, this, this sort of angst that people have about getting away from those kinds of claims. Don't make those kinds of claims. Don't say that you have the truth. Just acknowledge the fact that we're all working with our own truth. And we're all trying to figure it out. But don't make the arrogant claim that you have the truth or that you know the truth. That just causes problems and division and oppression and things like that. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I'm seeing some heads nodding. Okay. But the fact is that Christianity makes universal claims. Christianity makes claims that if they're true, they're not just true for me or just true for you. They're true for everyone. In the same way that gravity applies here and it applies in China and it applies in Korea and it applies in Africa. If Christianity is true, it's universally true. It can't just be true for one person. And there's this increasing idea that, well, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and there's really no such thing as truth. We're just all kind of figuring it out. But the irony of that statement is, if there's no such thing as truth, then is it true that there's no such thing as truth? Because if it's true that there's no such thing as truth, then it must be true that there's no, you know, and this gets really, really convoluted very quickly, and nobody's had enough coffee to have that conversation yet today. (laughs) But there's a relationship with this understanding of truth and the abandonment of sort of like the oppressive, cat, oppressive category of truth, there's a relationship with that and our notion of freedom. 
today in our culture. The modern understanding that was expressed really clearly by this young woman that I sat by on the bus of freedom is that freedom is the total removal of any restrictions. That's what it means to be truly free. If I can fully live my life, I can experience anything I want to, anytime, however, at any point, that's what it means to be truly free. If I can just experience and express myself in, in, in un, any uninhibited way, then I am totally free. That's the modern idea of freedom that I see just permeating the, our culture today. And truth presents restrictions to my freedom. If there's something that's true or universally true outside of myself, then I have to sort of um, be surrendered to that or subject to that. And that's, it's restrictive and it's limiting. And you've probably heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Has anybody heard that phrase? Um, in other words, beauty doesn't just exist as something, um, as something independent. It's actually created or determined by the person who sees it. Does that make sense? And today we live in a society where people say that truth exists in the eye of the beholder. It's not universal. It doesn't apply to everyone. You can decide for yourself. And it's liberating. Excuse me. It's liberating. But is it really liberating? Is it really liberating? Are we really more free if we eradicate this category of truth? Are we more free in society? So that's the question, this huge question of what's going on in culture today with truth? What can we know? What kinds of truth statements or values and convictions do we share across our society in this country today? Are there any? Should we even try anymore? A lot of people are struggling with this. What is the role of truth today in our culture? And the more people I talk to, whether in leadership or just, you know, people who are living their day-to-day lives in, in their respective cities and roles, it seems that there's this widespread feeling of instability about what's going on in our society today. And that can be in our personal lives, political issues, social issues, I mean, you name it. People just have a sense of, that things are just unstable. They're not rooted well. And I was, I was in my, my car. This was just a couple of months ago. And I was sitting at a red light. And to my left, there was a car parked on the, on the curb facing the same way as me. And I was sitting at the red light. And while I'm sitting there, I see out of my peripheral that this car starts rolling backward. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but in that moment, I found myself just pressing up. I was already, my foot was on the brake, but I hit the brake even harder. Because for a brief second, I couldn't tell if they were rolling backward or I was moving forward. Has anybody had this experience at an intersection or something? And you have this mini panic attack because you think my brakes have failed or something or I fell asleep. I don't know. And you see this and we have this sense of sort of vertigo in that moment where everything's in motion, but we don't necessarily have anything that's a fixed point of reference. So immediately, what do we do? We look for something stable, right? You can't look to yourself in that moment because you don't know if you're moving. So you look for a signpost or a stoplight or a person. And then all of a sudden you find a fixed point of reference and you know kind of where the motion's coming from. And I think that today in our society, that's the experience that many people are having. Where things just seem to be shifting. And we're looking for points of reference so that we can sort of have an assessment or an analysis of what's going on because we can't quite Figure it out. It just is in flux. But our culture says that's the way to be. Live that fluid life. 
You know, you don't have to have these fixed reference points. You can be liberated from those types of things. But is it really freeing us? So where does this term post-truth come from? Well, the Oxford English Dictionary, every year, chooses a word of the year that they believe expresses the ethos and the fascinations of the culture at the time. And in 2016, the the Oxford English Dictionary chose word of the year post-truth. This is the definition that they use. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. I'm going to read that one more time. Post-truth is an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So a, a post-truth idea isn't that truth doesn't exist. That's not actually what it means. Post-truth means that truth does not have the same status anymore. That it doesn't matter in the same way anymore because it elevates feelings and experiences over facts and reason. You tracking with me? Okay. So why? Well, it's, to, it's not necessarily to undermine truth altogether. It's about empowering the individual. Post-truth society is about empowering the individual. And what I, what I think I have observed, even in the short period of time where I've been trying to pay attention to what's going on in the world, is that the lens of truth has been flipped. It used to be the case that the way we approached life, the way we interacted with with each other was a top-down approach. In other words, truth was this category that existed, and we interpreted our lives, our relationships, our interactions, our experiences through this lens of what's true, right? So these are the things that I believe that's true, I have these interactions or these experiences, and I assess them, analyze them, process them through this lens of the things I believe to be true. That's been flipped. Now, we start bottom up, and we have our experiences and our interactions and all of these things, and we interpret truth through that lens. It's been disoriented, where the experiential and the emotional is primary, and the facts and the reasons, that's secondary. Because those can be inhibiting factors, oppressive factors. They're not the things that we should be looking to primarily to guide our lives. We need to look to ourselves. That's the message of of today. Um, Contemporary uh, prophetess Ellen has said, just be true to you and it will all work out. Anybody watch Ellen? Don't be shy. You can raise your hand. Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Ellen, Ellen is an interesting person, and she puts through, forth a lot of ideas into culture. But just be true to you, and it'll all work out. But it doesn't solve the problem or answer the question of which you you should be true to. That's a problem many people are facing. I have these incongruent desires. Maybe I want this, and I want this simultaneously, but I can't have both. How do you decide? That question has remained unanswered. We're suspended in air. So we live in this society where truth has been sort of eradicated, Um, questions, the definition of freedom, the notion of freedom have sort of been um, refocused on the removal of all these restrictions. But that's not freedom. And I don't, I confidently believe that we are not more free with this idea. And the biggest tell for me is when I actually talk to young people. And I look at the statistics about the rise of suicide rates among young people. And when I talk to university students who are just utterly disillusioned, I I mean, 
they've been so, uh, it's a longer conversation, but when you look to the younger generation and you watch this idea applied to their lives, it is not satisfying to people. And the statistics bear that out. People are really struggling, <laughs> really looking for something. Um, because the definition of freedom that they've, they've created, it's not freedom, it's autonomy. And that's something very different. Autonomy and freedom are not the same thing. So what is autonomy? Autonomy, root words, auto and nomos. Auto meaning self, nomos meaning law. So to be autonomous literally means to be a law unto yourself. In other words, you decide for you. Does that make sense? That's what autonomy is. And we're, now our culture is using the word freedom, but what they mean is autonomy. And everyone's embracing autonomy. We've removed truth and exalted personal preference. Self-preferential autonomy. That is the supreme value of our culture today. And that's what people are pursuing. And it's subjective. You decide for you, I'll decide for me. The problem with that is that when we come to an impasse where we disagree, and there's a fair number of disagreements in our country today, wouldn't you agree? There are. We have a little bit of this going on. So how do you decide when two people have individual separate truth claims? Do you know how you decide if truth doesn't exist? Power. That's how you decide. When truth isn't a category to be appealed to, to be referenced, and you have two people with individual subjective truth claims, the stronger will win. That's how that works. And that's what we're seeing. Because when truth is disempowered, things like tribalism is the result, which is what we observe in our country right now. That's how you get the birth of things like cancel culture and deplatforming and censorship and the rise of political correctness and the rise of more radical ideological movements. That's how that happens, because ultimately we don't have truth to appeal to. We only have power and force. And that takes on all kinds of different forms. I'll mention just briefly, this is a bit of a, a, a summary of how we got to this place, because I do think that that's important. There was a theory um, put forth now uh, quite a long time ago um, I think, I mean, the earliest idea of this, I think, was in the 1800s. It was called the secularization thesis. Has anybody heard of that, uh, heard of the secularization the thesis? I know it's, it's big words, but it's really quite simple. Secularization just means the progressive removal of God from public life. That's what that means, to become more and more secular. And there was this idea put forward that as humanity and civilization would advance, the need for God would become smaller and smaller that as a whole, human civilization would become less religious. Now, statistically speaking, that is not true. It's not. Actually, belief in God and the Christian faith are growing rapidly, largely in other countries, but rapidly. Actually, statistically speaking, by 2050, China will have more Christians than the United States. It is growing rapidly in very different parts of the world for, and, and in unique ways these days. It's actually really exciting if you look at the growth of the global church and where that's happening, especially in the southern hemisphere. It's just absolutely exploding. It's really amazing to see, and it's encouraging to see. But the secularization thesis said that that wouldn't happen, and it's failed. Nevertheless, we do see a rise of secularism, especially in the culture of 
our country. We do see that. How did that happen? Well, it happened progressively. I'm borrowing this from a guy named Rob, uh, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, one of my, my favorite thinkers. He's brilliant. I highly recommend his books. Um, and he just briefly has this summary of how we got to this place. And he looks at the process of secularization of different um, centuries. So he starts in the 17th century. That's the 1600s. And he points out to the fact that in the Western world, we experienced a secularization of knowledge. And that just took the form of the Enlightenment. This is when science started sort of exploding. So for the first time in, in the history of the Western world, we saw an affirmation that knowledge was not based on necessarily the creed. Remember we sang about, you know, what I believe, the creed? That um, it's not based on the creed, but rather the twin foundations of reason and observation. So science took the forefront. And that's not, science isn't a bad thing. Science is an evil thing. But it was looked at as a secular vehicle. The second stage was in the 18th century, we saw the secularization of power in the West. And this played out in the form of the American Revolution in 1776 and the French Revolution in 1789. Um, there were some strong opinions about the church in those days. Um, one French revolutionist said, men will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. So that's pretty brutal, you know? I mean, that's, that's a strong conviction that church and state need to go. And that's why we have a contemporary secular nation state of France, largely because of the outworking of the French Revolution. So the secularization of power took place. In the United States, it was uh, separation of church and state, not eradication, but separation. And that's, that's okay. I think in our country, in the American experiment, that's a, that's a good thing, actually. But it did change the church authority in the, in the nation. And then in the 19th century, we have the secularization of culture. So this is where instead of going to churches and cathedrals, people would go to art installations and concerts. There's a rise of, of, of arts and things like that. And then the 20th century, we saw the secularization of morality, which um, can't, comes through the progressive abandonment of the Judeo-Christian ethic, things like no-fault divorce and the legalization of, of abortion and things like this, a departure from Judeo-Christian values. And now here we are. I know that's a little long-winded, but here we are in the 21st century, after this progress of secularization, and now we live in a century that's characterized by the disempowerment of truth. And what this has resulted in is the exaltation of the individual and in a misguided pursuit of self-preferential autonomy in the name of freedom. And that's where we are today. We've removed truth as a category. We're pursuing freedom on our own, personally defined terms, and we're left wanting. That's what we're seeing today. That's what I'm seeing today. Everywhere that I go, this is actually is not just an American issue. This has become a global question. Now, in John 8, Jesus says some different things than this about freedom, particularly John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus is very clear about freedom. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, that's a direct contradiction to the message of, of culture today. The truth will set you free. Well, how does the truth set you free? How could it be that this category that restricts could somehow liberate us? How is that even possible? It's an interesting idea today. A lot of people would disagree with that right off the bat. Now, I have a question for anybody. Has anybody ever flown in a dream? Anybody? Fly, experienced flight in a dream? I'm not in a, in a plane. I mean, you and yourself. Yeah, okay. It's only happened to me 
maybe twice in my life that I can remember. But it's an amazing experience. I always loved uh, watching the movie Hook with Robin Williams. It's about, it's about Robin Hood. And I love his journey to be able to fly. And, and it's just an interesting thing to watch. And I always, as a kid, wanted to be able to fly. And when I would have those dreams, I can remember one in particular as a kid, and I could fly. And it felt so real. It wasn't one of those dreams where you wake up and kind of forget. It felt real. I woke up and I was like, that was awesome. When do I go back to bed? This is cool, you know? And the, the closest I can get really to flight would probably be skydiving, which I haven't done because I am terrified of heights. Kind of ironic considering I want to fly so bad. But I, I, I don't want to do that. But if I really wanted to experience flight, the ultimate way to do that would be to skydive without a parachute. Now, I know that somebody did that recently, by the way, and they landed in a net and survived. I'm not that risky, risk-taking, but, you know, when you, if you were skydiving, yes, the path of least resistance seems optimal, but gravity doesn't take a day off, you know? And it makes sense to have a restriction that might impede your speed and the experience of being fully free in flight, but at the end of the day, it's going to save your life, Right? Sometimes resistance is important. Sometimes it serves a purpose, and it actually makes something like skydiving possible. It's it's a liberating restriction in that sense. It makes something possible. Truth is part of reality. And there there aren't just sort of physical truths in our universe. There are also moral and spiritual truths that transcend anybody's opinion. They really are true. For example, if you choose something in your life, something material, let's take money as a very easy example, and you make it ultimate, and you live for the pursuit of financial growth, and you live for money, and that becomes your ultimate, it will gradually destroy you. It will. It happens to a lot of people. It will run you aground on the rocks, your relationships will suffer, and your soul will wither. It's a moral, moral and spiritual truth if that becomes ultimate. I love the, the words of David Foster Wallace. He's, he's tragically um, not alive anymore because he actually took his own life. But he was a, a publicly professing atheist. And um, he very honestly wrote this statement um, about this idea that truth and worship are so present in our lives. I'm just going to read this briefly. He says this. Because here's something else that's weird but true. That's his start. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is, no act, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He's an atheist, remember. In the day-to-day trenches of life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping, he says. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for that may be choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship and he mentions, you know, whether that be Jesus Christ or Allah or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, and parables. The skeleton of every great story. 
The whole trick is keeping the truth up in front in daily consciousness. I mean, what an honest statement <laughs> from a guy who claims atheism. He says, no, 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 no. We all are inclined to make something our God. We all are. And self-awareness of that fact is key. That's what he said. I mean, the irony of him saying something like this is that he clearly didn't find something that satisfied him because he chose to exit life, which I think is very tragic. I would have loved to have a conversation with him or, set, or have some, one of you have a conversation with him because he would have, I think he would have been willing to listen. I mean, that's, that's genuine. That's very honest. There are moral and spiritual realities in our lives. And the modern idea is that we need to abandon those as well. But it's not leading us into any, any good place. This, this idea that the fewer restrictions I have, the freer I am. Um, I really, I, what do I enjoy them? I mean, honestly, I'm toss up between barbecue ribs and pizza for my favorite food, I think. I don't know. There's an ebb and flow here. I don't know. Um, I don't know about you. But if I just, I, there's a great, uh, like, New York slice place in D.C. called Wise Guy Pizza that I really, really like. And I'll swing by for a slice whenever I can. And I could eat Wise Guy three times a day. I probably could for an entire week and be unfazed by that. It's really good. But if I committed to that, because I wanted to satisfy that craving all the time, there's going to come a day where my cholesterol is going to be outrageous. I mean, it's just not going to go well. And my doctor's going to be honest with me and be like, look, Michael, I know you love this, but you got you to chill. You can't have health and long life and satisfy every craving you have. Right? So this, that's the dilemma. How does, this, how does this message bear out about being free anymore? What do you, what do you mean I can't do what I want to do? I can't, I can't? Well, you can't have both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Do you want health and well-being and a long life? Or do you want to satisfy every craving you have? You see, none of us are truly free to do whatever we want. It's just the practical facts of life. Even just day-to-day existence, you don't get to do that. The liberating restriction of true freedom is that you can be restricted over here so that you can have a richer and deeper freedom, in this case, of health and a longer life, over here. Does that make sense? So we actually restrict ourselves so that we can be free. And there's, there's a very interesting psychological study about children playing in their backyards. And that children that had a fence in the yard would actually venture further out. Whereas kids that didn't have a fence in their backyard would stay closer to the house. Because there wasn't a boundary that they felt safe to sort of explore. Something about boundaries allow us to feel more at ease and more free and to to play and experience. Boundaries in life can be liberating. Okay, so we need to to land the plane here soon. So what does it mean then for the role of truth in, in freedom? Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. What true freedom is, is finding the restrictions that are true, that that are necessary for for you to be released into that richer, deeper life. It's the right restrictions that fit in with the reality of who we are and what we've been made for. That's what true freedom is. It's not the absence of boundaries. It's the presence of the right ones in accordance with the truth of who God made you to be. That's what true freedom is. It's literally what you were made for. It is what you were created for. That kind of freedom. You are designed for it. Without it, you will not be free. It's a transcendent reality of life. That's what it is. 
So if you find the truth of who you are and what you've been given and what's been entrusted to you, the truth really, truly can set you free. So when you give up your freedom, you surrender to those restrictions, it will release you into that deeper freedom. Um, one just additional quick example, um, I don't know if anybody had a fish growing up. My first fish, it didn't go so well, so I never got a fish again, okay? It's a little traumatic from my childhood. But in a fishbowl, if you look at a fish in a fishbowl, you'd think, man, what a small existence, you know? Shouldn't that fish have a right to just get out there and explore the world? You know, but my question for you is, is a fish in the grass free? Is a fish in the grass more free than a fish in a bowl? No, it's not. Because it can't move, it can't do anything, it can't swim. But when it's restricted to water, it thrives, it regains its strength, and it lives. Freedom is more complex than our society is willing to admit right now. It is. So what is the right restriction? Well, I want to suggest that the right restriction is on the basis of love. That that's how we can start to figure out what the right restrictions are for for freedom. And this is where I want to look at um, the idea of a love relationship. So a love relationship requires the surrendering of individual freedom. If, If you don't believe that, you might not be married in the room. I don't know. But a love relationship requires the surrendering of individual freedom. And it's a mutual surrendering. Because if it's just one person that surrenders their freedoms, the other person doesn't, then it becomes exploitative. It has to be a mutual surrendering of individual freedoms for the sake of the relationship. And a lot of people think of God more as like an employer, right? So he, he has this contract relationship. These are the things that you need to follow, the, the divine set of directives, from your maker, and you must comply with these things. But that's, that's kind of dehumanizing. That's not actually how God approaches us. He approaches us much differently than that. That's, that's a contract relationship. That's not freedom. Those are certain kinds of obligations so that you have to meet the demands of a contract. That's not a, that's not a relationship. Why would you want to be in that? Most people wouldn't. It's not free. I don't want that kind of situation. And people, as an alternative, would say, well, it's better to be made for nothing at all than to have that kind of obligation and directives. I'll just make my own purpose. The number of people I've met who say they can create their own purpose is astonishing. And a lot of people get exhausted trying to do it. It's tough. Now, this is where John in the New Testament is a game changer. In John 1.1, this is where we're going to start to land the plane. John 1.1, he wrote this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. That's a very confusing sentence for an English reader. The word with God, was God in the beginning. What's the word? Who's the word? You know, this is where uh, the Sunday school opportunity, who's the word? Yeah, it is. It's Jesus. That's who John is referring to. But he's, he wrote in Greek originally, and the word that he used here, in the beginning was the logos. That's what he writes. And logos, okay, that's unusual. Does it sound familiar? Should, because it's where we get our English word logic from. And the logos for the Greek audience that would have read this, when they read that sentence, it would have jumped off the page. They would have thought, excuse me, the logos? What are you talking about here? In the beginning was the logos? Because the Greeks were bent on discovering what it was. Because it was, whatever it was, it was the principle of ultimate reality. If you could unlock what that was, you could unlock the universe and understand everything. 
That's why they were so motivated in philosophy and politics and all of in their legal system and everything. They wanted to discover what's true, what's ultimate reality. How do we unlock it? What is the logos? The logos. And here John writes, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. It's incredibly profound to a Greek audience. It's a loaded term. What is the reason for life? What were we made for? That's what he's referring to here. The fish was made for water. What were you made for? What were you made for? If you give yourself in surrender to the truth that is in the person of Jesus Christ, you will experience freedom. It is available. And there's various ideas and debates that were going on when when John was writing this. But this is the idea he introduces. Three things. Firstly, he says there is truth. In the beginning was the logos. It does exist. Truth does exist. That's the first implication. The second is that it's not an abstract notion. That it's not directives. Why? Because truth is a person. Have you ever heard that before? Truth is a person. And that's the heart of what John is getting to here. He's saying, look, truth isn't something just to figure out intellectually, though Christianity is very intellectually satisfying. I have found that to be true. Truth isn't something just to be experienced, like nirvana or something like that in in Buddhism or a New Age faith, though the Christian faith is a profound experience. And truth isn't just a list of directives or something to do or a behavior to follow, though the Christian faith, if you do follow Jesus, will lead to flourishing in your life. Ultimately, truth is a person to be known in the person of Jesus. It's unlike anything else. There is no other religion or philosophy in the world, in the history of human civilization, that has ever claimed that truth is a person except for the Christian faith, that Jesus is the truth. It's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I have the truth. He said, I am the truth. Who says that? Right? Nobody else makes that claim. Krishna didn't make that claim. Muhammad didn't make that claim. Buddha didn't make that claim. Joseph Smith didn't make that claim. Jesus alone says, I am the truth. What? That is, there's nothing like it. Nobody else is suggesting that. Nobody except for him. And you were made for him, to love him, to know him, to serve him, and to enjoy him for eternity, to journey with him, a person to know, to hug, to love. It's what you were created for. Why is this so liberating? Why would you ever surrender your freedom for that? Because the more you value a relationship, the more you're willing to sacrifice for it. Does that sound familiar? When you love someone, you will sacrifice for it. And I know a lot of people who are like, I don't know. You're asking me to give up my life. You're asking me to change my lifestyle. You're asking me to redirect everything. It's a big ask. Yes, it is. So why should I trust a God who's going to ask me for that price tag? It's too much. A lot of people feel like it's just too overwhelming. But why, why would you trust that God? Well, because remember, in a mutual relationship, it's not just one person who surrenders. It's two people. Otherwise, it's exploitative, right? And the beauty of the Christian faith is, again, like unlike any other worldview or philosophy, Jesus surrendered first. He gave up his freedoms. He went to the cross. The creator of the universe, 
the one in whose name the stars were created, the king of kings, he gave up his freedom so that you could be free. And he went to the cross. He was bound, beaten, and nailed and killed. That's an exploitative relationship. He surrendered first. And his invitation to you is, if you want to know freedom, this is, the willing, this is the extent I'm willing to go for you, to know you, to love you, to invite you into a relationship. If you want to know freedom, surrender back to me. Because he has already surrendered for you. That's the extent of his love for you. And in that surrender, he offers you forgiveness for the past, new life in the present, and an eternal existence. I mean, it's an incredible offer. It's, it's a scandalous offer, to be honest, but it's profound. Let's go back to the, the bus story, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Um, I, I loved the conversation I had with this young woman. We don't have time to go into every detail, but as it went on, I asked her if I could share personally about my own life, my own spiritual journey, and I was really transparent with her, to be honest. And I would encourage you in your conversations with people that you encounter, whether they're skeptics or you know, friends or coworkers or maybe just uh, you know, somebody you know who's in a period of doubt, to be honest and transparent because the grace of God as it impacts your life, it can't be faked. It's real. People sense it, the love of God in your life. Be honest. Be real with people. And I, I, I opened up with her about my own journey, you know, of trying to find God in other things and looking for, you know, liberating experiences. Or for me, it was just kind of experience to experience and hopping around and looking for something that would satisfy. And I said, you know, um, you were made for an experience, but with the person of Jesus Christ. We actually talked about John 4 and the woman at the well and how Jesus spoke to this woman and dignified her. At that time, rabbis, I mean, no men would talk to a woman who weren't their life in public, but especially rabbis. That was taboo, big time. And Jesus did it. He dignified this woman. And we talked about this story, and I said, you know, he would speak to you the same way. And she said, she actually sat in silence and I saw a tear roll down her, che- her cheek. And she looked at me and she said, you're not going to convert me. And I said, you started this conversation. And she said, okay, yeah, I did, I did. And we chatted for a little bit longer. And she let me pray for her. And she said, you know, I got on this bus, an atheistic Buddhist, and I'm getting off an agnostic, which is a win, by the way. You don't have to go from A to Z, okay? You can go to like A to B or A to you know, tea or something like that. That was an an amazing moment. And I'm so grateful that God continues to put me in those positions. But don't be mistaken. He can put you in those positions too. And now in a society where we live with this false gospel that freedom is something that's found when you cast off all restrictions, that truth doesn't exist, and that your purpose is ultimately something you have to create, people are lost. Just like in that moment where the car is rolling backward. They're in the sense of vertigo. They just don't know where to find a fixed point of reference. You know what that fixed point of reference is. It's Jesus in your life. It's the gift of forgiveness. Remember that. Remember that gift he's given to you. And shine that light to the people around you. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you so much for Grace Point Church. And um, that you are alive and that you are at work in us. What an incredible truth. And what a unique truth. Unlike anything else. And Father, I just ask that even today, if there's anyone here that just feels the weight of life or 
um, has misplaced the ultimate in their life with something other than you, that this would be a time that they could realign with you and just remember that you surrendered your freedom first. You made the first move. You came to us and that you invite us into a beautiful relationship of freedom and love and joy. And I pray that you would renew that in the hearts and minds of those here today. In Jesus' name, amen.